This podcast is brought to you by Lannan Foundation and is available at podcast.lannan.org. Thank you. It is a special honor and joy for me to introduce poet and novelist Michael Andache, whom I first met and first heard read 40 years ago. Although Michael was then only a few years older than the students who surrounded him that autumn afternoon, he spoke as if we were his peers. And the little shock, the frisson of being taken seriously as a fellow poet, woke me as if from a dream to show me that, yes, this practice of setting poems on paper had meaning in the world. It is also an honor because I regard him as among the world's exemplary living writers, and in his case, in several genres. When my own students now come to me asking whether they should specialize in poetry or fiction, I sense that they don't wish to do this, but hope to write everything in all forms. I advise them that if they wish to write poetry and fiction, they should consider becoming a Canadian. As it is apparently possible, north of the border, to avoid confining oneself to only one mode of literary art. Michael, of course, is Canadian, from Upper America, as he calls it. But originally, he is from Ceylon, now Sri Lanka, of Indian, Dutch, and Sinhalese ancestry, arriving in Canada by way of England. After earning early recognition for his poetry, including two Governor General's Awards, and high critical praise for his early prose. He became the first Canadian to win the Booker Prize for his acclaimed novel, The English Patient. He is among the most original of contemporary writers, inventing an altogether new species of literary art with the publication of the collected works of Billy the Kid, wherein he fused lyric poems, snapshots, flyers, interviews, diaries, and songs into what was for him a very personal novel, an occasion to don the costume of the young murderer, Billy Bonney, and through this figure explore a radical limit of human possibility. This was followed by the lyric poems of Rat Jelly, praised for their figurative flair, wit, and surreal imagination, wherein his poignant elegy, Letters and Other Worlds, appears, and we glimpse for the first time the poet's father, Mervyn Andache, whose life is reassembled more than a decade later in a poignant and lucidly imaginative memoir running in the family. His second novel, Coming Through Slaughter, inspired by the life of jazz man Buddy Bolden, was the occasion for Andache to experiment with placing historical figures in an imagined world. Years later, in Anil's Ghost, he would reverse this procedure, placing imagined characters in the actual circumstances of a prolonged and murderous political conflict. In The English Patient, four characters, historical and imagined, find themselves in the remains of an abandoned nunnery at the close of the First War, and a story emerges through the prism of their perspectives in the play of language and mind across history and against the scrim of an unexplored land. In his next and most structurally intricate novel, Divisidero, a farm in California is mirrored by a farm in France. In Michael Andache's literary universe, 
Birds, snakes, and jungle flora invade human dwellings. Stilt walkers, acrobats, and high wire artists perform in darkness. Buddhas are stolen and buried, and there is always awareness of the wash of language in ink on paper. The play between poetry and prose is one of shuttling between distilled lyric and the more capacious but nevertheless delicately honed narratives. What disarms the reader throughout is Andace's architectural intricacy, his masterful shifts so necessary to the complexity he honors in the worlds he creates, wherein anything might happen at any moment and the coincidental and arbitrary become indistinguishable. His art is deft, quick, casual, and seemingly produced by slate of hand, yet nothing is inconsequential or superfluous. He resists all manner of systematic thought, and like an explorer of underground caves, moves into the unknown by the light of question upon question. His novels, as he has said, begin with a single image, a plain falling from the sky to the desert, a woman returning to her homeland as a stranger, and the work proceeds, buoyed by an artistic interrogation of character and circumstance. Andace's obsession seemed to include the fragility of civilized worlds, the endurance of art, the causal relationship between wounding and creativity, the wild clarity produced by dramatic experience and also love desire, and betrayals in war and peace. Through indirection, fragmentation, temporal shuttling and reticence, he preserves complicatedness, and within startling disclosures, a certain mystery, a fissure, white space, silence. Against the surface of interwoven scenes, he holds a scrim of myth, legend, and history, playing with temporal scale so that we are by turns in historical, geologic, and cosmic time. As he has provided us maps, charts, atlases, and the paraphernalia of his various characters' professions, we as readers become implicated in the text. We become sappers diffusing an explosive plot, forensic pathologists discerning the marks that render human remains legible. By pulleys and ropes, we are hoisted into works of the imagination and from the ground of our reading, a particular and necessary wisdom is with great care exhumed. Most recently, he has published The Cat's Table, a work of lyric wonder and almost mystical intricacy wherein a young boy, also named Michael, is sent alone by ship from Colombo to London and finds himself two fast friends and a floating village of characters who include a botanist, a tailor, a retired dismantler of ships, a kennel master, a pianist who has hit the skids, a troop of acrobats, a dying millionaire, and others even stranger than these. No one is perhaps who they seem, and all will not be revealed. But in the end, those fortunate enough to pick up the clues he has scattered along the way, the treasures and secrets hidden in plain sight, will have the most remarkable readerly pleasure that can be imagined. To read this book is to enter a watchworks of intricacy, sensuality, and mystery, and it is to experience many readerly sensations at once. 
We are at sea and moving through weathers as well as intrigues, through storms and wild imaginings, at times suspended as if by ropes and lifted above all that transpires in the maze of rooms from the hold to the bridge. The adults on board are enchanting, but unreliable, kind at times, but also unpredictable. No one is who he or she seems. And just as we are floating above the action, we are taken down into the mysterious hold. The Cat's Table is a novel, yes, but it is a novel that seems to be a memoir. Or it is altogether a new thing and is not untethered from Michael's previous works. It is almost a clue to all of them. Please join me in thanking Lannan Foundation for making this evening possible as I thank them for bringing me together with the poet who most helped me to imagine what my life would become. And let us welcome Michael Andace to Readings and Conversations Santa Fe. Yes. Okay. Is it okay? Okay. Thank you, Carolyn. Just don't believe a word she said. (laughs) So I'm going to read from the cat's table. And um, as you said, the the three boys on this ship uh, have become close friends. One is named Cassius, who's quite bad. One named Ramadan, who's quite good. And the narrator, whose uh, nickname is Mina. Cassius had another name when uh, I began the book, and but a third of the way through, I changed his name to Cassius, and he became much worse. <laughs> so, uh, the book is uh, you're on the ship for 21 days, and the voice of, of, the, of a boy. The book begins. The book begins with the voice of a young boy, and later on, it becomes an adult voice at times. Sleep is a prison for a boy who is friends to meet. We were impatient with the night, up before sunrise surrounded the ship. We could not wait to continue exploring this universe. Lying in my bunk at 5 a.m., I would hear Ramadan's gentle knock on the door. Then I would hear him whisper, Mina, which became my nickname. We would meet Cassius by the stairs and soon would be strolling barefoot on the first-class deck. First-class was an unguarded palace at 6 in the morning. And we arrived there even before a fuse of light appeared on the horizon, even before the essential night lights on the deck blinked and went out automatically at daybreak. We removed our shirts and dove like needles into the gold-painted first-class pool with barely a splash. Silence was essential as we swam in the newly formed half-light. If we could last undetected for an hour, we had a chance to plunder the laid-out breakfast on the sun deck, heap food onto plates, and abscond with a silver bowl of condensed milk, its spoons standing up in the center of its thickness. Then we'd climb into the tent-like atmosphere of one of the lifeboats and consume our ill-gotten meal. One morning, Cassius brought out a gold-leaf cigarette he had found in the lounge and taught us how to smoke properly. We left the crockery and knives and spoons that came with our stolen meals in the lifeboat and slipped back down to tourist class. 
A steward would eventually discover traces of our numerous breakfasts, so that for a while the captain searched for a stowaway on board. It was not even eight o'clock when we crossed the border from first class back to tourist class. We pretended to stagger with the roll of the ship. I had by now come to love the slow waltz of our vessel from side to side, and the fact that I was on my own without family supervision was itself an adventure. I could go anywhere, do anything. And Ramadan, Cassius, and I had already established one rule. Each day we had to do at least one thing that was forbidden. The day had barely begun. We stood at hours ahead of ourselves to perform this task. In the hour before dawn, when we got up to roam what felt like a deserted ship, the cavernous saloon smelled of the previous night's cigarettes, and Ramadan and Cassius and I would already have turned the silent library into a mayhem of rolling trolleys. One morning, we suddenly discovered ourselves hemmed in by a girl on roller skates, racing around the wooden perimeter of the upper deck. It seemed she had begun getting up even earlier than we had. There was no acknowledgement on her part of our existence as she raced faster and faster, the fluent strides testing our balance, testing her balance. On one turn, mistiming a cornering leap over cables, she crashed into the stone railing. She got up, looked at the slash of blood on her knee, and continued glancing at her watch. She was an Australian, and we were enthralled. We had never witnessed such determination. None of the female members of our families behaved this way. Later, we recognized her in the pool, her speed a barrage of water. It would not have surprised us if she had leapt off the ship into the sea and kept pace for 20 minutes alongside us. We therefore began waking even earlier to watch her roller skate the 50 or 60 laps. When she was finished, she'd unlace her skates and walk exhausted, sweating and fully clothed towards the outdoor shower. She would stand in the gush and spray of it, tossing her hair this way, that way, like some clothed animal. This was a new kind of beauty. When she left, we followed her footprints, which were already evaporating in the new sunlight as we approached them. The three weeks of our ship journey, as I originally remembered it, were placid. It is only now, years later, having been prompted by my children to describe the voyage, that it becomes an adventure when seen through their eyes, even something significant in a life, a rite of passage. But the truth is, grandeur had not been added to my life, but had been taken away. As night approached, I missed the chorus of insects, the howls of garden bulls, gecko talk, and at dawn, the rain in the trees, the wet tar on Buller's Road, rope burning on the street that was always one of the first palpable smells of the day. Some mornings in Borla Scamua, I used to wake early and make my way through the dark, spacious bungalow until I came to Narayan's door. It was not yet six o'clock. I waited until he came out, tugging his sarong tighter. He'd nod to me, and within a couple of minutes, we'd be walking quickly and in silence across the wet grass. He was a very tall man, and I was a boy of eight or nine. Both of us were barefoot. We approached the wooden shack at the foot of the garden. When we were inside, Narayan lit the stump of candle and then crouched with the yellow light and pulled the cord that burst the generator into life. So my days began with the muffled shaking and banging of this creature that gave off the delicious smell of 
petrol and smoke. The habits and weaknesses of the generator circa 1944 were understood only by Narayan. Gradually he calmed it, and we go into the open air, and in the last of the darkness I'd see lights go on haltingly all over my uncle's house. The two of us walked through a gate onto the high-level road. A few stores were already open, each lit by a single bulb. At Junadasa's we bought egg hoppers and ate them in the middle of the almost deserted street, cups of tea at our feet. Bullock carts heaved by, creaking, their drivers and even the bullocks half asleep. I always joined Narayan for this dawn meal after he awakened the generator. Breakfast with him on the high-level road was not to be missed, even though it meant I would have to consume another, more official breakfast with the family an hour or two later. But it was almost heroic to walk with Narayan in the dissolving dark, greeting the waking merchants, watching him bend to light his beady on a piece of hemp rope by the cigarette stall. And then one day, on the ship, I smelled burning hemp. For a moment, I stood still, then moved towards the staircase where it was stronger, hesitated about whether to go up or down, then climbed the stairs. The smell was coming from a corridor on D-level. I stopped where it seemed strongest, got on my knees, and sniffed at the inch of crack under the metal door. I knocked quietly. Yes, I went in. Sitting at a desk was a gentle-looking man. The room had a porthole, it was open, and the smoke from a rope whose end was burning seemed to follow the path over the man's shoulder and out of it. Yes, he asked again. I like the smell. I miss it. He smiled at me and gestured to a space on his bed where I could sit. He pulled open a drawer and brought out a coil of rope a yard long. It was the same hemp rope that hung slowly outside most cigarette stalls in Colombo, where you lit the single smoke you had just bought there, or, if you wanted to cause a disturbance, you used the end of it, the burning coil, to light, to light the fuse of a firecracker. I know I shall miss it too, he said, and other things, Gothamali, balsam, I have such things in my suitcase, for I am leaving forever. The man looked away for a moment. It was as if he had said it aloud to himself for the first time. What is your name? Michael, I said. If you are lonely, Michael, you can always come here. I nodded and slipped out and closed the door behind me. His name was Mr. Fonseca, and he was traveling to England to be a teacher. I'd visit him every few days. He knew passages from all kinds of books he could recite by heart, and he sat at his desk all day wondering about them, thinking what he could say about them. I knew scarcely a thing about the world of literature, but he welcomed me with unusual and interesting stories, stopping abruptly in mid-tale and saying that someday I would find out what happened after that. And often during the night, while stalking the adult world with Ramadan and Cassius, I'd attempt to add to the bare bones of an adventure Mr. Fonseca had left unfinished. He was gracious with his quietness. When he spoke, he was tentative and languid. Even then I understood his rareness by the pace of his gestures. He stood up only when it was essential, as if he were a sick cat. He was not used to public effort, 
even though he was now going to be part of a public world as a teacher of literature and history in England. I tried to coax him up on deck a few times, but with his books, his burning rope, some bottled Kelly River water, as well as family photographs, he had no need to leave his time capsule. And so I would visit that smoky room if the day was dull, and he would at some point begin reading to me. It was the anonymity of the stories and the poems that went deepest into me, and the curl of a rhyme was something new. I had not thought to believe he was actually quoting something written with care some, in some far country centuries earlier. He had lived in Colombo all his life, and his manner and accent were a product of the island, but at the same time he had this wide-ranging knowledge of books. He'd sing a song from the Azores, or recite lines from an Irish play. I brought Cassius and Ramadan to meet him. He had become curious about them, and he made me tell him of our adventures on the ship. He beguiled them as well, especially Ramadan. Mr. Fonseca seemed to draw forth an assurance or a calming quality from the books he read. He'd gaze into an unimaginable distance. One could almost see the dates flying off the calendar and quote lines written in stone or parchment. I suppose he'll remember these things to clarify his own opinion, like a man buttoning up his own sweater to give warmth just to himself. Mr. Fonseca would not be a wealthy man, and it would be a spare life he would be served to lead as a schoolmaster in some urban location. But he had a serenity that came with the choice of the life he wanted to live. And this serenity and certainty I've seen only among those who have the armor of books close by. I am aware of the pathos, irony that comes with such a portrait. All those foxed penguin editions of Orwell and Gissing and the translations of Lucretius with their purple borders that he was bringing with him. He must have believed it would be a humble but good life for an Asian living in England where something like his Latin grammar could be a distinguishing sword. I wonder what happened to him. Every few years, whenever I remember, I will look up any reference to Fonseca in a library. I do know that Ramadan kept in touch with him during his early years in England, but I didn't. Though I did realize that people like him came before us like innocent knights in a more dangerous time, and on the very same path we ourselves were taking now, and at every step there were no doubt the same lessons, not poems, to learn brutally by heart, just as there was the discovery of the good and cheap Indian restaurant in Lewisham, and the similar opening up and seeding of blue aerograms to Ceylon and later to Sri Lanka, and the same slights and insults and embarrassments over the pronouncing of the letter V, and our rushed manner of speaking, and most of all the difficulty of entrance and then perhaps a modest acceptance and ease in some similar cabin-like flat. I think about him at those English schools wearing his buttoned sweater to protect himself from English weather, and wonder how long he stayed there, and if he did really stay forever, or whether in the end he could no longer survive it, even though for him it was the center of culture, and instead returned home on an Air Lanka flight that took only two-thirds of a day to begin again teaching in a place like Nugegoda. London returned. 
were all those memorized paragraphs and stanzas of the European canon he brought back the equivalent of a coil of hemp or a bottle of river water? Did he adapt them or translate them, insist on teaching them in a village school on a blackboard in the sunlight, the rough call of forest birds screeching nearby? Some idea of order at Nugegora. We were by now fully knowledgeable about most locations on the ship, from the path air ducks took in their journey away from the turbine propellers to how I could slip into the fish preparation room by crawling through a trolley exit because I like to watch the fish butchers work. Once I balanced with Cassius on the narrow struts above the false ceiling of the ballroom in order to look down on the dancing humans, it was midnight. In six hours, according to our schedules, dead poultry would be carried from the cold room to the kitchens. We had discovered the door to the armory had a buggered latch, and when that room was empty, we strolled through it, handling the revolvers and handcuffs. And we knew each lifeboat contained a compass, a sail, a rubber raft, plus emergency chocolate bars that we had already eaten. Late at night, after the specially invited first-class passengers had left the captain's table, and after the dancing had ended with couples, their masks removed, barely stirring in each other's arms, and after the stewards had taken away the ab- abandoned glasses and ashtrays and were leaning on the four-foot-wide brooms to sweep away the colored swirls of paper, they brought out the prisoner. It was usually before midnight. The deck shone because of a cloudless moon. He appeared with the guards, one chained to him, one walking behind him with a baton. We did not know what his crime was. We assumed it could only have been a murder, the concept of anything more intricate, such as a crime of passion or a political betrayal, did not exist in us then. He looked powerful, self-contained, and he was barefoot. Cassius had discovered this late-night schedule for the prisoner's walk, so the three of us were often there at that hour. He could, we thought among ourselves, leap over the railing, along with the guard who was chained to him into the dark sea. We thought of him running and leaping this way to his death. We thought this, I suppose, because we were young. For the very idea of a chain, of being contained, was like suffocation. At our age, we could not endure the idea of it. We could hardly stand to wear sandals when we went for meals. And every night as we ate at our table in the dining room, we imagined the prisoner eating scraps of metal, scraps from a metal tray, barefoot in his cell. Our ship continued to move northwest, crossing into higher latitudes, and the passengers could feel the nights becoming cooler. One day we were told over the loudspeakers that a film would be shown after the dinner sitting on the deck outside the Celtic room. By dusk, stewards set up a stiff sheet at the stern and brought out a projector, which they covered mysteriously. Half an hour before the film began, about a hundred people had made up a restless audience, the adults sitting on chairs, the children on the deck itself. Ramadan, Cassius, and I got as close to the screen as possible. This was our first film. There was a loud crackling in the speakers, and suddenly images were thrown onto the screen, which was surrounded by a receding purple sky. We were just days away from landing in Aden 
So the choice of the four feathers was, I see now, tactless. As it attempted to compare the brutality of Arabia with the civilized, though foolish, England. We watched an Englishman having his face branded. You got to hear the sizzle on, the, on his flesh, so that he could pass himself off as an Arab in an invented desert nation. An old general in the story referred to the Arabs as something like the Gazara tribe, irresponsible and violent. As for the subtler issues of jingoism and cowardice in a time of war, those were blown away by the strong winds into the passing ocean. The sound system was not good, besides which we were not used to atonal English accents. We simply followed the action. There was also the possibility of an additional subplot, for our ship was approaching a storm zone, and if we turned our heads away from the drama on the screen, we could see forks of lightning in the distance. The movie, as we rolled under the gradually disappearing stars, was being shown in two locations. It had begun half an hour earlier in the pipe and drums bar in first class, projected to a quieter group of about 40 well-dressed passengers. When the first reel was over, that segment of the film was rewound and carried in a metal container down to our projector on deck for its alfresco showing, while the first class audience watched the second reel. As a result, there were confusing fallouts of sound that merged the two screenings. The volume on every speaker was turned to maximum because of the roar of the sea winds, and we were constantly assaulted by contrapuntal noises. While watching a tense scene, you could hear rousing songs in an officer's mess. Still, our alfresco showing had the atmosphere of a night picnic. We were all given a cup of ice cream, and as we waited for the first class reel to be over, and then threaded onto our projector, the Jankla acrobatic troupe performed. They were doing a juggling act with large butcher knives, just at the moment we heard the bloodthirsty screaming of attacking Arabs <laughs> from the speakers in first class. And the Jankla troupe was parodying these yells with comic body movements. And then the magician stepped forward to announce that a brooch someone had lost the day before could be found hanging over the projector's lens. And so, just as the first-class group was witnessing the brutal massacre of English troops, exultant cheers rose from our audience. <laughs> our film proceeded on the seemingly live canvas of a flopping, flapping screen. The plot was full of grandness and confusion, of acts of cruelty that we understood, and responsible honor that we did not. And Cassius would go around for days, claiming to be part of the Aronze tribe, irresponsible and violent. Unfortunately, the anticipated storm burst loose over the ship, and as the rain hit the projector, the hot metal began hissing. A steward attempted to hold an umbrella over it. A gust ripped the screen loose and sent it skittering over the ocean like a ghost, and the images continued to be shot out targetless over the sea. We never learned the end of the story. In any case, that night saw the beginning of violent storms that assaulted the Aronze. It was only after this was over that we escaped the turmoil of the ocean and landed in the real Arabia. Perhaps it had been the failure of that film to satisfy us. I still cannot explain why we did what we did then. It may simply have been because it was to be our first sighting of a storm at sea. After the projector had been rolled away and the chairs stacked, there was a sudden lull upon the ocean and in the sky above us. 
so that now, even though we were told that the radar had blinked the existence of another approaching upheaval, the winds had quieted, and this gave us time to prepare ourselves. It was Cassius, of course, who persuaded me into the best seat in the house for the catastrophe. We talked it over near the lifeboats. Ramadan did not wish to participate, but he offered to help set it up. A day earlier, we had come across some ropes and tackle in a storeroom that had been left open during the lifeboat drill. And so that night, during the lull, while nearly all the other passengers had returned to their cabins, we made our way to the open promenade deck near the bow and found various permanent objects we could attach ourselves to with the ropes. We heard the captain announce that they were expecting a 50-knot gale and to prepare for the worst. Cassius and I lay on our backs side by side, and Ramadan began to tie us with ropes to some V-shaped rivets and a bollard. He was hurrying, for he could see the storm coming. He checked his knots in the darkness and left us there, spread-eagled and tightly harnessed. (laughs) The deck was deserted, and not much happened for a while, save for a light rain. Perhaps we had veered away from the storm. But then the gale hit and pulled the air out of our mouths. We had to turn our heads away from its rush in order to breathe, the wind buckling like metal around us. We'd imagine lying there conversing in wonder about the lights of the storm at some great height above us. We were now almost drowning from the water in the air, the rain, and the sea that was leaping over the railings and swirling across the deck, lightning hitting the rain in the air above us, and then it was dark once more. A loose rope was slapping at my throat. There was only noise. We could not tell if we were screaming, only trying to. With each wave, it sounded as if the ship was breaking apart, and with each wave, the wash covered us until we were tilted upright again. I became aware of a constant rhythm. Whenever the ship plowed into the oncoming sea, we were swept around within the surf, unbreathing, while the stern rose into the air, the propellers out of their elements screaming till they fell back down into the sea, and we on the bow leapt up again unnaturally. As I lay on the promenade deck of the Oranze during those few hours when we believed we had given up any chance of our lives, everything coalesced. I was something orderless in a jar. All I held on to was that I was not alone. Cassius was with me. Now and then our heads turned simultaneously in the lightning, and we watched this, saw this blunt, washed-out face of the other. I felt I was caught in this place. If and when the ship pivoted its nose down, and descended, overcome by some towering wave, Cassius and I would still be permanently tied to a pump generator or some such thing. There was no one else. We were the only ones on the surface of the ship, as if staked out for sacrifice. The waves shattered, rolled over us, and disappeared overboard quick as a nightmare. Then we rose, then we dropped into the next valley. All that was holding us to safety was Ramadan's slight knowledge of knots. What did he know of knots? We assumed in our death throes that he had no knowledge of them. We were not safe at all. There was no sense of time. How long were we there before we were blinded by searchlights focused down from the bridge onto the two of us? Even in our frayed state, we sensed the outrage behind the light. (laughs) It seemed like hours before someone nudged me. The storm was still active, but calm enough now to send three sailors out to our rescue. They cut the ropes, the soaring knots had fused, 
and we were carried down a flight of stairs to a dining table that was doubling as a medical center. There had been a few bashes to the head and broken fingers during the last hour or so. We were stripped down and each given a blanket. We were told we could sleep there. I recall that when I was lifted by the sailor, there was such warmth in his body. I remember that when someone removed my shirt, he said that all the buttons had been knocked loose. I saw Cassius's face as if all intricacy had been washed away. Then, just before we fell asleep, Cassius leaned over and whispered, don't forget, someone did this to us. Um, I I hope you realize jumping around, but uh, I should have said that before. Uh, This is a scene where the ship goes through the Suez Canal um, about two-thirds of the way through the journey. Or page 127, anyway. We approached the canal in darkness at the stroke of midnight. A few passengers camped on the decks had taken the experience and were half asleep, scarcely conscious of the clangs and bells that guided our ship into the narrow eye of the needle that was El Suez. We paused to take on an Arab harbor pilot who climbed from his barge up a rope ladder. He walked slowly towards the bridge, ignoring all authority around him. This was his property now. He would be the one to take us into even shallower waters and adjust the angle of the ship so we could slip into the narrow canal on which we would travel the 190 kilometers to Port Said. We could see him in the brightly lit horizontal windows of the bridge beside the captain and two other officers. It was a night we never slept. In less than half an hour, we were sidling alongside a concrete dock with crates stacked into giant pyramids and men running with electrical cables on baggage carts alongside the slow-moving Aronze. Everywhere, there was fast, intense work under the pockets of sulfurous light. We could hear shouts and whistles. The three of us hung over the railing, gulping in air, taking it in. This night turned out to be our most vivid memory of the journey, the time I stumbled upon now and then in a dream. We were not active, but as constantly changing worlds slipped past our ship, the darkness various and full of suggestion. Unseen tractors were grinding along the abutments. The cranes bent low, poised to pluck one of us off as we passed. We had crossed open seas at 22 knots, and now we moved as if hobbled at the speed of a slow bicycle, as if within the gradual unrolling of a scroll. Bundles were being flung up onto the foredeck, A sailor swung himself down to the passing land to sign territorial papers. I saw a painting leave the ship. In my sidelong glimpse, it appeared familiar. I might have seen it in one of the first-class lounges. Why would a painting be removed from the ship? I could not tell whether everything taking place was carefully legal or a frenzy of criminality. For only a few officials oversaw what was going on, and all the deck lights were out and all activity was hushed. There were just the lit windows of the bridge, 
the three constant silhouettes as if puppets guided the ship, following the orders of the harbor pilot. He came out a few times onto the open deck and whistled into the night to instruct a man he recognized on shore. A concurring whistle replied, and we'd hear the splash of a dropped chain, and the bow of the ship would jerk suddenly to re-angle itself to one side or the other. Cassius and I perched precariously on the bar railing where we could witness the fragmentary tableaus below us, a merchant with his stall of food, engineers talking by a bonfire, the unloading of refuse. All of them, all of this, we knew we would never see again. So we came to understand that small and important thing, that our lives could be large with interesting strangers who would pass us without any personal involvement. I remember still how we moved in that canal, our visibility muted, and those sounds that were messages from shore, and the sleepers on deck missing this panorama of activity. We were on the railing, bucking up and down. We could have fallen and lost our ship and begun another fate, as paupers or as princes. Uncle, we shouted, if someone was close enough to distinguish our small figures. Hello, uncle. And people would wave, fling us a grin. Everyone who saw us sliding by was an uncle that night. Someone threw us an orange, an orange from the desert. Cassius kept shouting for beadies, but they did not understand them. A dock worker held up something, a plant or an animal, or the darkness disguised it too well. Under a swaying cord of electrical light, down there on shore, was a man sitting at a makeshift table, filling out forms he handed to a runner who caught up with a ship and flung the papers with a metal weight so they landed at the feet of one of the sailors. We never stopped moving. We, pour, we passed a runner as well as a man at the table furiously recording the charts of exchange and a canteen cook beside an open fire roasting a thing whose odor was a gift a desire in the night, a temptation to abandon the ship after all the European food we had been eating for the days. Cassius said, that is what frankincense smells like. And so our ship continued, guided by these strangers. We were collecting what was fresh from the land, bartering for objects thrown on board. Who knows what was exchanged that night, and what cross-fertilization occurred as the legal papers of entrance and exit were signed and passed back down to land, while we entered and left the brief and temporary world of Elsuis. There was a time in my late twenties when I suddenly had an urge to meet Cassius again. While I'd kept in touch with and spent time with Ramadan and his family, I had not seen Cassius since the day our ship docked in England. <coughs> And during this period, when I had the desire to see him, I came across an announcement in a London newspaper. There was a photograph of him. I would not have recognized the face except it had his name beside it. Older, darker, as different as I probably was from the boy I had been on board that ship in the 1950s. It was an advertisement for a show of his paintings. And so I went into the gallery, city to a gallery on Cork Street, I went there not so much to see his art as to make contact with him, to have, I hoped, a long meal together and talk and talk and talk.
I knew little of what had happened to him since our three weeks together, although I knew he had become a well-considered painter. That had surprised me. But was he as wild, I wondered, and had he remained as dangerous as he had seemed to me when I was a boy? Some grains of Cassius had, after all, remained in my system. I looked again at the announcement I'd cut out of the paper and at the picture of him leaning against a white wall with a hint of belligerence. But Cassius was not there. It was a Saturday afternoon. I got to the gallery and was told the show had opened a few evenings earlier and that Cassius had made his appearance then. I did not know how much about the habits of the art world, and it was a disappointment. But the absence did not matter. For what I saw in the paintings was Cassius himself. There were large canvases that filled the three rooms of the Waddington Gallery, about 15 of them. They were all about that night in Elsewis. The very same sulfur lights about the night activity that I still remembered, or at least began to remember that Saturday afternoon, and the open fires, the ancient-looking logbook being filled urgently by the scribe at the table in the crisp night air. I thought the paintings were abstractions at first. There was a sense in them that things were taking place on the edge of or just beyond the painted colors. But once I knew where we were, everything altered. And all this enlarged me. And I did not know why. I suppose it clarified how close Cassius and I had been, real brothers. For he had also witnessed the people I saw that night with whom we had felt so oddly aligned, whom we would never see again, only there, in that night city of another world. We had not talked of this, but it had somehow come to both of us, and now they were here with us. I walked over to the visitor's book, where people were expected to write comments. Some of them were quite grand, overly intellectual, some just said delightful. A loose scroll that took over a whole page said, Little old lady got mutilated late last night. It must have been written by one of Cassius's drunken friends, and no one else had dared to write on that page. The sentence exposed itself there, quite solitary. I leafed through the rest of the pages for a while. I put down the date and I wrote, The Aronze tribe, irresponsible and violent. And I added, sorry to miss you, Lina. Left no address. I went outside, but something else held me, so I decided to walk through the gallery again, this time glad there was hardly anyone there. And when I realized what it was that drew me, I circled the gallery once more to make sure. I read somewhere that when people first celebrated the distinct point of view of Latigue's early photographs, It took a while before someone pointed out that it was the natural angle of a small boy with a camera looking up at the adults he was photographing. What I was seeing now in the gallery was the exact angle of vision Cassius and I had that night, from the railing, looking down at the men working in those pods of light, an angle of 45 degrees, something like that. I was back on the railing, watching which was where Cassius was emotionally when he was doing these paintings. Goodbye, he was saying to all of them. Goodbye. Thank you very much. 
That concludes the reading for this event. Up next is the conversation. Isn't that a beautiful reading? Thank you, Michael. Thank you. Uh, I'd like to begin with childhood. You took this journey as a child, mm-hmm. a journey on a ship. Was yours the Aronze? Yep. And you told your own children about it one day. This is what That's I right. heard. And they were horrified. <laughs> Rather than enchanted that this was a wonderful adventure, they were horrified that you... Yeah, well, I, I had no family. I mean, I didn't have any parents on the ship with me, so I was driving through troubled waters, you know, like an innocent, not that I was, but um, yeah, I, I think they were quite shocked that you know, children were sent off for 21 days on a ship to another country. And, uh, you know, and today, of course, kids are hesitant about sending their parents, are hesitant about sending their children on a, on a bus downtown. <laughs> so, um, and, and the minute they said they were appalled, I was slightly appalled as well. <laughs> and so it became a kind of book where I had to pretend. Um, well, the thing was, I, I did not remember this journey at all. This was a, a strange thing, so I had to totally invent it. But um, uh, it became interesting that the whole thing about fear, what you do with fear, which is, should be there, and it, so it doesn't, it doesn't get talked about at all by, by the boys anyway. So right. I became even more fearful as a result. I think. <laughs> <laughs> so you invented a voyage to replace the memory you didn't have. Of your voyage. And now it's absolutely truthful as far as I'm concerned, the whole thing. Exactly. (laughs) Um, Our mutual friend, Fanny Howe, Mm -hmm. um, was intrigued by a conversation she had with you about childhood and about the differences between the way that you may have experienced childhood in Colombo, Mm -hmm. the way that we experienced it when we were young here, but now the way it is. For yeah, children, very yeah. different. Mm-hmm. And we also talked about children who don't have parents or are abandoned or are left on their own. And uh, you were talking with her about the differences between how they might be cared for mm-hmm. in Salon and here. Well, I think I, think I was talking to about a group called SOS, which is an organization that actually is all over the world. That There are SOS villages even in America. But each country organizes it differently. And in Sri Lanka, these villages, which are essentially orphanages, uh, a friend of mine dis- built and designed them. And he built the, he, they all look like circuses as far as, you know, they're brightly colored and they're, they're beautiful. And um, they're, they're very smartly organized. Each house has a parent, a mother. And um, they range from about 2 till 16. And with every 10 houses... There's, a, there's another house which has a, an aunt. So if you don't get on with your mother, you can go and complain to the aunt. So it's quite a, a very clever thing. We all need that, actually. It's and then you, have a, uh, you encountered a man in Delhi who has also created an orphanage that... R- yeah, it, it, uh, it's a school orphanage that is quite amazing that he you know, picks up lots of kids who are very troubled and... and uh, you know, essentially helps them and helps educate them. Quite, quite remarkable. And you were describing earlier today to me that these kids are street kids, mm-hmm. and when they first come... Well, the thesis of this guy is this unconditional love. He says, you can leave whenever you want, but you're always welcome here. And they didn't quite believe it, and 
they kind of, for the first year and a half, they kind of broke up everything in the, in the place, and he just accepted everything, and then gradually, you know, they kind of believed him. So kids who come in now have these kind of, these peer groups who kind of tell them that this is actually quite true. Right. It's quite an amazing place. Um, I want to switch to something now from, that I noticed in the cat's table mm-hmm. that I hadn't realized in the other books or hadn't seen. Maybe it wasn't explicit in the other books, but in the cat's table, you address issues of power, authority, resistance to authority, class, mm. class differences, the perception of the children mm. regarding class differences and privilege. It, it's an interesting direction mm. that, that you've taken there. I didn't but, notice that, actually, but... Um, <laughs> you didn't? Um, no? No, no I, mean, I mean, maybe. I mean, I think the thing is, if you have a, a narrator who's a love old boy, it, it helps to kind of be blunt, you know? Uh-huh. Um, uh, because, I mean, the, the kids are responding, they respond to adults in a kind of very different way. Uh, and, I mean, they, they can tell where the power lies, you know, in, uh, in a room right away, and if someone likes you or not. So there's a, that kind of perception, which is n- not complicated. You know, the world is much more complicated than that, but, you know, it, it's, it's, it's quite straightforward for them. So perhaps that brings out a lot more of that stuff. So you weren't consciously trying to thread... Uh, a discourse on this through the book. No, no, I, I would. I don't think I'd go that, that way. Okay. But you know, I'm, I'm, I'm glad it's there. I'm, I'm sure it's a good thing. You know, but. <laughs> <laughs> okay, uh, <laughs> but this brings us to the issue of how the works are made, because my understanding is that you, that when you're writing, the, the when you get an image, you have an idea, a question begins in your mind, something, an image forms, and then. Around this little grain of sand in the oyster, mm. the, the work emerges, and you, you pour out without worrying. You just write and write and write. Huh? And then you get all of this material, and you begin to shape it and edit it. Is it? Well, I, I, th- I, I think that essentially, it's, I, mean, I usually begin with nothing. In that sense, I begin with the small images you right. mentioned earlier on. And um, I, have to, I need a situation. I need a time period. I need a place. And those are, that's pretty well all I begin with. I, I don't know who the characters are yet. I don't know, that even if there are two, two or three characters in that first image, I'm not quite sure what their personalities are like yet. You know? uh, but, and it's really a discovery of the characters as you write the story. Mm-hmm. And that's what interests me most of all. And that leads to plot and action and so forth. You know, so how they bang against each other. Um, in this in this book, it was actually interesting because uh, I did have a very strict... Uh, I, I decided I'm, I'm not going to kind of jump location as I usually do. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'm going to stay on a ship, but of course I didn't... I could, you know, everything else was changing. The landscape was changing, so that was uh, an extra bonus. But, but, but staying on the ship, being limited to the, the location was great for me. And also being limited to the, the 11-year-old voice yeah. A lot of those other things are, are, don't even come up. You're only seeing through this little tunnel, right? Yeah. So um, it is, it, even though I'm, I'm not quite sure where the story is going, I, I know that, you know, there is a structure, there is a line. And I didn't know, boy gets on the ship at the beginning and to spoil the book, gets off the ship at the end, you know, so. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> but a lot happens that you haven't heard, by the way. Um, but anyway, so um, 
so that, that I, I kind of like that kind of uh, formal stage. Uh -huh. You know, I, I'm not used to that really. So, but you do take things out once you've written all the material and you begin to shape it. Mm -hmm. You know, you you have realized that some of the material you wrote can't be in the book. Can't. Yeah, though oddly enough, because that was a kind of uh, a strictness that I don't normally have. Uh, there wasn't as much taken out as I, I can think of a couple of small scenes, uh, you know, that I, but I usually I take out much more in my, in my novels. Mm -hmm. But this one actually also fell in, in the order that I wrote it, uh, and, 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 and as it exists right now, you know. Often I'm, I can move, I'll move whole sections to an earlier point. Where does, where for instance does Kip's past come in, English patients should it come at this point or 30 pages later, they could be moved around. But in this book, because it is going from point A to point X, you know, um, certain things are happening and they have to happen in a kind of order. And I really didn't know anything more than the fact that the boy got on the ship at the beginning. I didn't, I didn't know who the people were going to be on the ship. Um, and it was just having those two other boys, suddenly they became a, a, a gang. And then the people at the cat's table, about seven or eight other people, um, mm -hmm. uh, were, you know, suddenly became a, a, a more of a social book in a lot of ways. I thought it was going to be just about a young boy going to England or landing in a foreign country. And in a way, the book became a book about how people land in foreign countries, you know. So it's, it's Asuntha, what happens to Asuntha or the convict or Ramadan or Cassius or whoever it is. You, you had know. a whole village. Yeah, it was a village, yeah. uh, and, and they all land and, and become different people in different ways. Well, I was interested in this process of editing. You have a book of interviews with the mm -hmm. film editor, Walter Murch, who, right. who was the film editor for The English Patient, mm -hmm. and it's a fascinating book of uh, conversations between the two of you in which you find that the process of editing a film, and for you, the experience of the work of crafting and building and shaping and making the novel are very similar. Mm -hmm. And you began to feel that all art is a, is a question of that kind of making, right? Of shaping. Yeah, I mean, I think the act of editing is as important as the act of making or writing the, the, the discovering the story, you know. Uh, yeah. And I really do think that uh, in the conversation, I, I talked to a, a ballet dancer and she said when she stopped uh, ballet, the thing that was closest to dance was editing. Right. editing film, you know, because you've got, you've got a movement, you, you fine-tune that gesture to the, to the minimum number of frames almost, you know. And like the cutting floor, you have your pieces that never, make, never were kept mm -hmm. from the original draft, from yeah. the first draft. You, this goes way back for you, though, because very early on you published The Elimination Dance, mm -hmm. which is a favorite book of mine. It's a based on this uh, dance where the MC keeps calling people off the floor in different categories, all of those with red hair leave the floor, mm. so on. But you're very funny. Give just two little examples of these eliminations, because Michael can be very, very funny. Those who, while visiting a foreign country, have lost the end of a Q-tip in their ear and have been unable to explain their problem. Mm. And then add one more, which is gentlemen who have placed a microphone beside a naked woman's stomach after lunch and later, after slowing down the sound considerably, have sold these noises on the open market as whale songs. <laughs> so this leads me to sound. <laughs> because sound becomes a character in your book for me. Mm. I heard 
you described sounds throughout Cat's table, very intricate sounds, and then I started looking for them and hearing them, the, the various noises that mm -hmm. the ship makes. The one that struck me very deeply was one with Gunapala mm -hmm. when you were a boy, and it is one afternoon he woke me from a deep sleep, took me by the hand, and made me lie down beside some bullock manure on the driveway that had been there for several hours. He pulled me right down beside it and made me listen to the insects inside the shit, consuming this feast and tunneling from one end of the feces to the other. <laughs> Beautiful. I know, but I have to say, I stole that because I think someone won some big award for uh, actually recording this sound. Someone did that? Someone did this, you know. It was like the Lannan Foundation gave them an award or something. <laughs> <laughs> or he got a MacArthur grant or something. You, know? <laughs> you, have, you have sound, like even you pay attention, like the mechanics are down in the engine room and the engines mm -hmm. are really loud. Mm -hmm. And you bring them up on deck after work and the boys are there seeing them and they're still shouting to each other yeah. even though it's yeah. silent. But are, were you trying to make a soundscape through this? Um, I, don't th I don't think I'll, I, you know, I think when you're writing there is something that's actually very close to film. I mean, I, I've been accused of told that you know, I'm very influenced by film and I, I don't think I am any more than any other writer. But I think when, I'm, when you're writing something, I, I'm thinking about weather and light and sound. And it's not just the story, it's, it's, it's the voice or how someone is having a conversation. All these things, you know, it's almost like having a group of people inside your head in charge of sound or in charge of lighting or <laughs> all you, but... you know, costumes and all these wretched things. Well, it, it caught me because I spent a long time trying to imagine what ants tunneling through yeah, shit would yeah. sound like. You know? Well, I'm sure you can find it on YouTube by now. You know? <laughs> or this will be. <laughs> I want to ask you about, about acrobats hmm. and tightrope walkers and magicians, these magic people, mm. circus people. You have them in this book, you've had them in other books, mm -hmm. they fascinate you. Why? What is this for you? Well, I know if you're a writer, you're pretty static, you know? Yeah. So yes. you, you, know, you want to kind of leap from windows and, you know, walk on somebody's shoulders for a while and stuff like that, you know? Uh, you know I mean, when I was writing In the Skin of a Lion, which had a lot about bridge building at night and, you know, I have a, I don't have vertical, but I have a great fear of heights. So, I mean, you know, you go towards the things you can't quite do, you know, perhaps. You have a fear of heights? Well, not a great fear of heights, but, you know, I'm not going to be hanging from some building, you know, laughing about it, you know. There is a, the first principle of art appears in a paragraph in the cat's table. This is your first principle of art. What is okay? it? <laughs> well, it's a, it's a key in a way to, to how... It, was a, it helped me to understand a little bit what you were doing oh, okay, uh, in the cat's table. And you say he spoke of how viewers of his films... This is You were talking about filmmaker Luc Dardenne. Yeah. And you said viewers of his films should not assume they understood everything about the characters. As members of an audience, we should never feel ourselves wiser than they, than the characters. We do not have more knowledge than the characters have about themselves. 
we should not feel assured or certain about their motives or look down on them. I believe this, you say. I recognize this as the first principle of art, although I have a suspicion that many would not. And so I have a question for you. Mm. I think you set up beautiful mystery by withholding information and that we as readers are always uh, moving through the text, trying to catch you and follow you and, uh, you know, and, mm-hmm. and pick up the clues and figure things out. And, but in films and in love books, the audience does know more. They know that the little girl is going to go in the room where the killer is. Mm-hmm. And so, so do you really think that that, that doesn't work? I mean, that you, you said some people won't agree with that. But do, no, I, I think when, you, when people watch a film, they, they kind of, they, we are judgmental. I mean, I'm judgmental when I'm watching a film about whether I like this character or not. You know, but, but what I like about Luke Darden and one half of the Darden brothers is that the, the, the compassion in their films is, is so forgiving and understanding of people who have sometimes done terrible things. You know, one film, someone sells his baby, you know, and then has yeah. to get it back. And, um, and you know, that's a, a great understanding that, you know, there are reasons sometimes for acts like this. And so we, 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 never, we have never been in a situation where this man has been in, you know, right. so that, so we, it's difficult to judge him. You know, we, we can't judge him, but, you know, I, I just love Darden's uh, So it, it leaves statement. it open. And when you're writing your books, I find that I never, I'm, I'm always curious about what's going on. I mean, mm-hmm. there's withholding. You withhold things and that, you know, we don't know. Yeah. The reader does not know more than... Yeah, I mean, actually, there's a scene in, it was a slightly perverse scene in uh, Arnold's Ghost where uh, one of the characters... Garmini goes back to his house and there's a letter from his wife and he puts it in his pocket. And it's sort of important what this letter might be and we never get to see him read it at all. You know, and it was just like his, his preoccupation at that point in the story is he has to get from that house to some other place. So he, the, the act of putting the letter into his pocket, the wife who has left him, says something about him and that relationship. You know, so... I kind of like that, even though it's slightly devious and perverse, you know. <laughs> because, because I want to read what that letter says, too, you know. Um, and, and, you know, in, in some books, like in, in The Scumber Lion, when, I think it's that book, um, yeah. a cat will disappear for, for 80 pages and come back, changed, but we haven't witnessed what goes on in her life at that time. So, and, you know, how... Stories don't end where the book ends, they carry on. So there's always that element too. So I, I think we have to accept the fact that characters are bigger than us as opposed to smaller than us. They're not puppets. I've not, without giving it away, the, the cat's table ends with focus on a character really surprised me that you would end by uh, an encounter with that character. Yeah. And what's interesting for me is that there are moments in the cat's table that you never complete. Little things that don't, aren't kind of revealed in the end. There are certain characters who don't, you don't revisit or think about, you know, so we mm-hmm. don't find out what happens to them. Mm-hmm. And is, is that something that you, that you feel gives a dimension to the novel that's m- more real and more the way that it is in life when 
people get off the bus and they go on and well, yeah i mean i i think i think so i, I don't no, again, I'm not being evasive here. I think the, at that point in the story, that you have to stay with a boy and, and the person who he, who he meets in, in in England. So you can say, "Oh, by the way, meanwhile this happened to so and so, and this happened to so and so." You know, um, the, the reader can imagine some of the stuff. I mean, Cassius sort of is, you know, goes into the ether in a way. Uh, so and, and he's interesting by his absence a lot of the time. You know. Uh, and he's very, very vibrant and funny and stuff like that in the first half. And uh, but you know he's more, more interesting in his absence sometimes. So you know I, I think that's what I felt. I didn't want to bring him back on stage or anything like that. I want you, I want to ask you about about craft and occupations and professions. Mm-hmm. What I love in all the books is that we learn so much about different things. How to diffuse a bomb. You know, what happens when a, a ship is taken apart? Mm-hmm. Uh, you have, um, we seem to enter into the lives of these makers. Mm-hmm. You're fascinated with this, mm-hmm. yes? Yeah. With that kind of knowledge and skill? Have you always been? Has that always been part of? Yeah, I mean, some professions I'm not drawn to, like <laughs> dentistry or something like that. You know. <laughs> but uh, yeah, of course I am interested in, in those things. And the Juggling. And the, <laughs> was that juggling of the knives in the book, or did you just? You know, it's funny. I was telling the, the story just before this. I'd totally forgotten. Um, anyway, it was, this was a, a pre nine eleven story I, I heard where um, this guy was going through uh, the, the machine, and they stopped him because he opened up the bag, and there were like fifteen butcher knives, exactly butcher knives, who I said in the story. And they said, "What's this?" You know, and he said, "I'm, I'm, a, I'm a juggler, and I have to kind of, you know." Take my trade. If if I lose my lose my bag, I'm screwed tonight. Right? So they said, "You're not a juggler." I said, "Yes, I am." And there's a huge crowd behind me wanting to get through the thing. <laughs> so, so he gets these twelve knives and starts throwing them around <laughs> to prove he's a juggler, and then they let him through. <laughs> today, this would not happen. No, no. We speculated about what would happen today, <laughs> but um, but they appeared in the scene. Yeah, what was the, something about butcher knives? With the Jankla troop go yeah, yeah, yeah. to entertain people, yeah. and they juggle see, butcher knives. I'd heard that story about ten years ago, and I just kind of just used a little bit of it. I didn't have the whole airport scene, but I had, <laughs> it's just the two words butcher knives. That's all it was. There was no homeland security. <laughs> um, one of the other things I noticed as an element in the cat's table was this beautiful aphoristic wisdom that would come out of the mouth of the narrator. And hmm. mostly the narrator, but also other people. There are a string of statements, and they go through. I won't share them all, but just to give a sense of that, um, one of them is: what is interesting and important happens mostly in secret, in places where there is no power. Nothing much of lasting value happens at the head of the table. <laughs> we were not safe at all. There was no sense of time. Adults are always prepared for the gradual or sudden swerve in an oncoming story. Writing this, I do not want it to end until I can understand it better. These statements, they're embedded in beautiful lyrics. I don't remember any of these lines. I think you know, <laughs> they're all there. They're all quotations. You write, the world was more accidental than any book's plot, for instance. Oh, yeah. Well, because Miss Laskidi hates uh, mystery novels because... There's always a solution in the mystery novels, and so she throws them overboard all the time because she's a more complicated woman. 
she she was throwing her books overboard, mm -hmm. and wasn't then there a rule against that? Yeah, well, that had already been a rule. So he, she stole off by the steward at one point. She's one of the fascinating characters in the. Yeah, in I love the, her. I must say that you didn't read a, a section from about no, her. About no, no. Um, but it, it, it's interesting because in, in a way, in, the, in your books, you sort of wait for certain characters to appear. And I mean, I, I don't necessarily wait for them, but I know that in, in, in The English Patient, Kip's arrival into the book or the story was a complete surprise to me. Uh, and I didn't know he was going to be turning up. But in retrospect, obviously, places crowded with bombs, someone has to come and deal with this, you know. <laughs> but I had no idea that Kip was going to come under. And then in... Um, Arnold's ghost, Garmini, the doctor, who uh, comes about halfway through too, so, and it becomes very, very important to the story. And in this book, um, somebody couldn't turn up halfway through the, the journey, but... Miss, <laughs> <No>. Miss, <laughs> it would be Miss, difficult. Yeah, Miss, uh, Miss Laschidi, who's a, a strange woman, is there. She's kind of uh, just in the background, she's like a, a wallpaper in a way. And I, I just kept thinking, she's going to be very interesting. Let's keep, keep her there for longer. And actually, she, she, was, she had a little aria later on. In fact, she had a big scene. She, she had about a 25-page letter, you know, that she tell, which was quite, quite interesting. Which she writes to another character. Yeah, she writes to another character. And I'm someone who cannot write a letter more than five lines long, but, you know, fictionally, I can write these giant letters. It's, it's much easier. You know. And there's also a mystery story that threads through because yeah. there's an undercover policeman yeah. on board and yeah. no one knows who he is. Well, there are two policemen. One is above cover. So yeah. Say. Yeah. But I won't give that away either, but we're wondering all the time who it is, who it is, who it is. Mm. And it was the most surprising person. I congratulate oh, you. Oh, good. good. Yes. I started to guess about three quarters <laughs> of the way, but you had me. I, I was really, that oh, was an amazing thing. I want to ask you about another thing, which is quirkiness. Quirkiness? Yes. The purser has a glass eye. Mm. What behooved you to have the water hit him in the face and wash the eye out to see? <laughs> yeah. I think that's possible. Well, it's quite impossible, Michael. I think that's possible I can use. But it's weird, you know, I mean, that you made that up, or did that ever happen to someone? I don't know. You don't a, make a, a soul with, with just one eye or glass eyes. <laughs> a few ports, maybe. But it's an enchanting image. You can't forget mm -hmm. it. You know, there are these yeah, little... Yeah, in fact, I, I cut that paragraph out when I read it, because I knew there'd be problems, probably, tonight. Problems? But you no, put, I know. No, it's okay. You put it back. Oh, yeah, I send that, yeah. But, but he's when got I these, read, I took out that. They're like little hand grenades, and they go off in the text, you know? That, right? They're, they're little TV, wonderful yeah. things. And then you also have lovely illusions, you know, like little old lady got mutilated late last night. I recognize Warren Zevin, <laughs> Werewolves of London. You know, and, but he mm. also has a lot, you have a lot of um, allusions in, to literature and there are mm. th various quotations mm. and references. And they're there. You can enjoy the book without knowing mm. what they're referring to. But yeah, you might think I wrote them myself. Lovely. <laughs> <laughs> they're lovely pleasures for the... For the reader who does yeah, yeah. happen to know where you got that, yeah. which is... I think I took a bet with someone that I'd work in that Warren Zevon line. He said, this is the greatest line in all rock and roll, and I, which I agree with. <laughs> it's the most illiterate. And when um, I mean, little old lady got mutilated late last night is unbelievably... How, how does that line work in a song? So, um, <laughs> and it, it makes sense, actually, in the song. But So anyway, I, I think I... I, I Won the bet, anyway. <laughs>
I, I want to talk about literary collage mm -hmm. uh, because you bring into this, as you have also in other things, um, you have an examination booklet that mm -hmm. your narrator fills with things he overhears, some mm -hmm. of which are hilarious, such as, <laughs> this is, some parts are very funny, something about a passenger asks another passenger, how can something be uh, an aphrodisiac and a laxative at the same time? Yeah. And what is the answer? It's all in the timing. <laughs> <laughs> you, uh, you have a quoted passage of prose from R.K. Narayan, whom I realized was a real writer, yeah. and, and you have you know various the letter that one character writes mm -hmm. to another, mm -hmm. is that this device of bringing in other kinds of texts, mm -hmm. um, is that something that you have always been fascinated by? Or yeah, something? I, mean, I, I think in Billy the Kid, uh, in that early book, I kind of, I mean, I, I, I grew up loving collage. I mean, I, I loved the, the art form itself. You know, I think it's one of my favorite art forms. So, uh, and in literature, you can also use that, I think. Uh -huh. um, and in Billy, I kind of, I had, you know, photographs, I had fake interviews, because I couldn't find a real interview with him, obviously. And, there, you know, there were lots of kind of songs and stuff like that mm -hmm. put up there. Um, so, you know, I, the way they uh, collage things, scenes bounce off each other, all these things are kind of, I think, are really very natural as well as, um, you know, dramatic. Your um, poetry book, Handwriting, which is exquisite, was written around the same time as Neil's Ghost. You, you have almost said they're kind of companion books mm -hmm. at, at one time. But I went back to Handwriting and saw the seeds of Cat's Table. Oh, really? Yes. The, it's a, the, the elements are amazing. <laughs> um, you have there, really, you have there... Um, the generator shut down by insurgents, the generator oh, yeah. reappears in, yeah. in this book. You have um, a Buddha pulled from the earth with ropes into a surrounding world, and you have the sailors in their rope, hanging from their ropes and their cradles. Mm -hmm. Ropes and cradles mm -hmm. appear again. Um, and you have, there are thieves, there's the dark piece like a cave of water. Uh, there are scaffolds, there, and there are um, circus in-laws who pyramid themselves into trees. Circus in-laws who pyramid themselves, and you have a pyramid of humans mm, yeah. on your deck of your ship. And actually have a pyramid in, in I found one of the families. so many things, and I thought, he, he let them manifest in this book. Mm. They, they sort of, these images sort of grew into little plants in this book. <laughs> An old book on the poisons of madness, and you have uh, lots of things about poisons and herbs in this in this. Yeah. Ships hold garden. I'm very guilty of these things. This crazed botanist. <laughs> you like poison, too. Oh, I don't like poison. What do you mean? <laughs> okay. <laughs> and we learn about cures, the cures that mm. are folk cures. from. Right. Right. And one of them is grinding up seeds and mixing them with cow piss. Oh, yeah. Actually, that's, actually, I did a lot of research on hydrophobia, <laughs> if you want to know. And um, I, I mean, I, I saw the Western versions and uh, the, the Asian versions, which are much more thrilling, uh, which involve the urine of cows and so forth. Are those real? Yeah, of course they're real. I've got some text somewhere or other. And you say that four out of, the, out of ten of these cures actually work. We don't know which that four. That may have been a guess, but... Um, 
that's no real proof. You have a character in this book who joins the circus briefly and becomes a tightrope walker, yeah. and, and, and here is from handwriting, children in the trees, one falling into the grip of that's another. That's exactly the, the, the place I'm thinking of. Yeah, that's a, a four-line poem, so I thought I, thought I could take, from the, take it from that one, no one would remember that one. It's just, it's, <laughs> but it's delightful if you read all mm. of these books mm. to, to re recognize the patterns and the images and the echoes mm -hmm. and the voices going back and forth in them. It's beautiful, mm. really. No, I mean, I, 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 I'll keep using them all the time, you know. It's, uh, I, I keep, I'll go back to using those poor, unfortunate people. <laughs> <laughs> um, you have a very poignant poem in handwriting about childhood and about saying goodbye. Mm -hmm. Dunaya. Dunaya. Um, um, is that the childhood that, that your narrator leaves as you conceive him? Yeah, I mean, uh, I, I wanted, I mean, I, I don't like to say that this, is, that this book is, uh, all these things didn't happen, because obviously in a book you want people to believe that these things are happening as we read them. And, um, but certainly there's much more, a lot of the early scenes in the book um, are, closest scenes I remember than the actual journey, which is what's hard. Mm -hmm. So a lot of the scenes in Sri Lanka when I was a kid are very real scenes, you know, and then moving out of that. And I tend, when I'm writing, usually not so much, so obviously it's here, but I, I usually begin, whatever I'm writing, I usually begin with a kind of factual situation, as I said before, whether it's location or time, a time period, and then gradually kind of starts, I start improvising off that. And... Um, do you foreshadow things later when you're making the final book? Hmm. Because I noticed there was a lot of very subtle foreshadowing in the cat's table, like the speculation about diving into the sea, mm -hmm. and, you know, yeah. things like that. Yeah, I mean, that was something, um, I, I, I didn't go back and put that in. I, mean, I, I have done that in, in other books, but I think in this book, there were just sort of little germs that became quite big ones, that, like that one, a very good example of things that, you know, become something more real and, uh, as opposed to imagined. I think when you were talking to Walter Murch, you said you wanted to make a book that was really tight. Mm -hmm. What do you mean by tight? A tight book that was well-crafted and made and... Did I say that? You did. No, uh, no. I said I'd like, I like to have a, a sudden ending, didn't I? A sudden ending. Yeah, and, it's, and I, I think the example I gave was a, a Bergman film after the rehearsal, which the last one I said, and it just goes bang in the blackout. It's like you don't have time to hear the, the echo of the sentence, you know. Um, but I, I think, yeah, I would love to you know, write that kind of type book, yeah. There's a, also the, a very um, interesting, the boys are trying to figure out the, the adult world. Sometimes mm -hmm. they guess wrongly or they imagine wrongly. But they're also recognizing that there's sexuality going on on the ship, and mm -hmm. they're not yet involved in that, and they're intrigued and enchanted, and in, it, it was very interesting, mm -hmm. because it seemed very realistic for, from the point of view of children. Mm -hmm. they, they weren't written, these children were written as, I imagine, with, with a great generosity toward what they actually really know that adults don't often give them credit mm -hmm. for. Mm -hmm. But also, you kept them on the edge of a kind of innocence, 
that mm -hmm. was quite beautiful. So they were glimpsing mm -hmm. the relationships and they would see something go on between a man and a woman on the boat and it would, it would kindle something in them but they weren't quite sure what yeah. yet. Yeah. But that was beautiful too. One of the things that was interesting in writing the book was that I, what I did have to kind of do add was I mean, the passage I read in the, in the Suez Canal and then the scene afterwards where he goes to Cassius's art show was when I was writing it, that, became the, that was the first adult voice scene you know, of, of Michael or Minor uh, uh, telling that story. And um, I, then I had to make sure that we had to be, we had to be it's, it's not too much of a shock. And I, I knew there was going to be some kind of movement towards adult, this adult voice as well. Um, because the first part, you are seeing it from the boy's point of view, but there's always a little kind of adult awareness of things, you know. Mm -hmm. And I think that's why there are a couple of other flash-forwards, if you want, earlier on, um, which I did put in. Um, to kind of make this not so sh sudden. And in fact, the, the opening of the book is in the third person, which also does that a little bit. Um, there's a sense also of the world as perilous. Mm -hmm. Sometimes this is in the boy's imagination, but you also create a very subtle <coughs> sense of peril in the surround of this ship mm. while you're creating a sense of safety too, using certain characters or... Mm. so. What, what I found, there were these dichotomies. There was peril, and then there was safety. There was a sense of claustrophobia of being in the ship, and then there was a sense of openness and freedom mm. of being at sea. Mm -hmm. These things were always playing against each other mm. in an interesting way. Well, that must have emerged naturally from me. You know, I'm not... I'm not <laughs> I told him that I would sometimes have trouble because I wouldn't phrase things in the form of a question. Yeah, so he and said, you didn't. I just raised, raised my one. voice at the end. It would, it would be a question, but um, <laughs> you, you don't talk about work. You, you don't. You wouldn't like a question like, "Well, what are you working on?" Yeah, well, I mean, because I'm not working on anything. That's that's, a, that's, that's an easy answer. You have never told me what you were yeah. working on in the present, yeah. Yeah. because is it because you missed? You, you're worried about doing that. No, I, mean, I, I don't usually talk, when I'm working on a book, I don't usually talk about writing the book, you know. But the only time you really want to talk about a book, for me, is, is about before it comes out, when there's a point before it's, it's actually complete, about, about, I don't know, seven-eighths of the way through the book. Mm -hmm. And I think that's the point where you are so aware of all the kind of echoes and balances and stuff like that. It's like going into a house, and you can tell if there's a mouse on the fourth floor, you know, it, it's, it, uh, and that, that's upsetting the structure or the, you know, air or something mm -hmm. like that, of sound, you're talking about that kind of thing. And that's, that, that's the time it's so interesting, you're just aware of the kind of echoes, rhymes, chimes, all these things, you know, preparations, um, things that's not, that are not quite working. And you're dying to talk about that, but there's, there's no one else who knows the book, so that's of much, uh, much use, you know. But that's, that's the kind of time that would be very interesting to talk about. But. So you, we were talking earlier about holding a book in your mind. I mean, poets mm -hmm. don't have to hold books in their mind because they're, you know, discrete poems that are compressed and sudden and they're on, uh, on mm -hmm. the page. But in a book, in a novel, mm -hmm. yeah. uh, 
you must keep all of these elements. You say that you keep it all in your head, right? Yeah. Walter Murch has these index cards with color codes and things that help him keep track of the whole film and what's going on in the film and different scenes and yeah. when they're going to be. Yeah. You, you don't have a system. No, I don't. But, but you know, you, you, um, but, you know, his thing about the color thing was interesting because he has a photograph from each scene in the, in chronologically that way. But sometimes you will see that that scene, because that picture is above this moment, Going this way sometimes might be a good jump, you know. Uh, and I think certainly when you're editing a book, um, you're conscious of you carry, you know, those leaps, you know, that you can make. Um, that sometimes makes it more exciting, you know. I mean, when I'm reading from the book, when I'm editing like crazy as I'm reading. Um, Still? Yeah. Well, I mean, I'm not editing for the book, but I'm, you know, sometimes if you're reading. Sometimes you kind of try out putting it into some other tense or something like that. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, so you don't, you keep it all in your mind. Well, I mean, I do do have the whole thing in my head at some, you know, most of the time when I'm writing it, yeah. I mean, I have numerous notebooks with each draft, so with each draft it changes, it changes, it changes, it changes. I remember asking you some years ago um, how one wrote prose, a poet, Mm. and you said, you write it just like you write poetry. Yeah, yeah, and so. so I asked you, well, how did you write The English Patient? Do you remember what you said? No, I don't remember. He said, you, you, uh, you, you pad around the house <laughs> and write for about five years. <laughs> <laughs> pad around the house. And then he said, then I had all of this material and I discovered that I had four characters who interested me. Mm. And... It sounds like I'm lying to you. <laughs> you didn't pat around the house, or you didn't have... I don't pat around the house. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, I, I, yeah. That, that one, characters dropped away like flies. If that's, that's what I was getting yeah, to, yeah, the characters. Yeah, yeah. And, and you said that then you had them, and you, you shaped your novel with these four. Yeah, well, with each draft, I'll write, the, the first draft is usually where you discover the story, and then the next draft... As you go through, oh, that guy's boring. It's dropping out right now, you know. You, and, and you keep going, and there's a huge hole here. So you have to fill in that hole. And so with each draft, you are hopefully improving it and, you know, fine-tuning it and tightening it and making it more suggestive, all those things. Well, I am trying to write prose now, and I just want to tell you that padding around the house doesn't help. <laughs> Yeah. It makes the whole thing You should talk to somebody else, I think. I can't believe we've <laughs> known each other for 40 years. Yeah, I know. It's quite amazing, and I've really enjoyed this well, conversation. And um, thank you, Michael. Thank you, Colin. You've been listening to a Lannan podcast. You can subscribe to our podcast at podcast.lannan.org. In addition, the Lannan Audio Archives present similar programs by national and international writers, poets, and social activists at www.lannan.org. Listen to hundreds of hours of recorded programs from the likes of Seamus Haney, Joy Harjo, Eduardo Galliano, Arundhati Roy, Jim Harrison, Edwidge Danticott, and Noam Chomsky. New programs are added every month to both the podcasts and the audio archives.